0: I'm singing of John's Word, the Lord's Word in John. I think it's 1 John 2, if I'm not mistaken, but where the Lord says, Do not love this world or the things in this world. If anyone loves this world, the love of the Father is not in him. And I think what John is saying is not, you know, if you love this world, then God's against you. He's saying, if you love this world and the things of this world, it's simply because you've not experienced God's love when you really have the Father's love in you, when you have an understanding of your identity, of who you are, when you have that sense of confidence because you're in right relationship with God, you find you don't chase after all the things everybody else chases after for your identity. You already know who you are. You're fulfilled in his purpose for you. And he goes goes on to say that the things of this world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, he says, these things are not from the Father. They're from the world. And the things of this world, you need to understand, he says, they're going to all pass away. But he says, whoever does the will of the Father, that is, whoever lives out of that love relationship with the Father, all that you do will remain forever. It'll abide forever. It's not going to pass away. It has eternal consequences and impact. And so our heart's desire as we come together, if you're visiting, we welcome you. Our heart's desire here at Glad Tidings as people who follow Jesus is just simply that we be people who who are just full of the presence of God and that when we meet together, the Lord is pleased to show up and be here and, and just be able to love on us and draw us close to himself and open our eyes to the stuff that we give ourselves to. Because a lot of times, you know, we can come in the Lord's presence and worship the Lord and be mindful of areas where we fail. And the devil will be there right away to pick on that thing and condemn us and say, well, you did this, therefore that's who you are. But you see, the Lord's the opposite. By the Holy Spirit, the Lord says, yeah, I see what you did, but I want to remind you who you are. You don't have to do that. That's not who you are. And you know that's not who you are. So come on, let's, let's move on. Let's grow. Let's, let's get into better things. It's just, it's just the heart of God, which is so opposite from the heart of the enemy, the devil who's a liar and accuser. And in fact, you can often tell, us, well, you can always tell the difference between the enemy and, and the Holy Spirit because whenever the enemy speaks to you, it's always in a way that will defeat you, it's a way that will lock you into where you are. Whereas the Holy Spirit comes in love and convicts us to show us what we're doing wrong, just like we do the child that we love. But he convicts us in order to correct us, in order to free us, and move on to who we are in him and all that he sees in us. So we just so thankful that you're here this morning, but if there's anything within your heart that makes you feel distant from the Lord, understand that's not the Lord's view of you. He may show you what it is that separates you, but it's only so that you can confess that, give that to him, and then draw close to him and continue to walk with him and, and be a messenger of that same grace. Well, our scripture this morning is Galatians chapter 4, and what I really want to speak about is the message of Christmas, which to me is kind of tied up in the realization that the the Bible is full of stories, and, and even in human history, we just see over and over again these stories of where at the very moment that it seems like God is nowhere to be found, that so often oh, God just breaks in. He just reveals himself. He shows himself in some wonderful ways, but oftentimes in those times and we think, we wonder, where in the world is he? What's going on? Who's in charge here? Again, our scripture is Galatians chapter 4, and perhaps we can just read it together, verses 4 and 5. Let's read together. When the right time came, the time God decided on, he sent his son, born of a woman, born as a Jew, to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own sons. Of the way, Paul begins that scripture. When the right time came, the the time that God decided on, the time that he knew was the perfect time. You know, one of the most common mistakes we make as human beings, and unfortunately a lot of times for Christians it doesn't change, and it should, but it doesn't. But a lot of times as human beings we make the mistake of thinking that God thinks like we do, that God believes what we believe, that what we feel is so important it must be important to God. And that's why a lot of times when we pray, if we're not careful, we can find ourselves praying, manipulating prayers almost. God, I wish you would change this and do this and do this. And the Lord says, listen, if I followed what you want, I promise you a couple years down the road or next week, it'll be a mess. Why don't you trust me? I know what's going on. I know what's best for you. Because you see, the Lord says, I don't think like you think. I see things you don't see. I understand dynamics you don't understand. What you need to know is who you are in me, that I love you, that I'm your father, I promise to care for you, I will grow you, I will mature you, and you've got to trust the process to me. you got to know my heart, as I think it was an old song or, that used to say, that when you don't see God's hand, trust his heart. That's why it's important to know his heart, because we were saying earlier, there's times that we don't see what God is doing. He's working, the Bible says that he's working, but we don't see what he's doing. We don't, we don't grasp exactly what's going on behind the scenes. That's where we have to lean into his heart. And so we see throughout human history that God loves to reveal ways that he's not like us. He must get a kick out of it sometimes. You know, we got it all together. We can tell him what to do. He must just kind of chuckle like, okay, okay. You know, it's kind of like when your teenager comes to you, you know, tries to tell you how life is supposed to work. No offense, teenagers, but, you know, we've kind of lived a bit longer. It's kind of like, that's real cute. Yeah. yeah, give it some time. You'll see. You know, it's like they, they say, you know, you, you used to think when you were a teenager that your parents were brain dead. And, and then for some reason, once you turned like 21 and got a job, maybe started a family, all of a sudden your parents got real smart. All this stuff they all just seemed to learn. Anyways, I don't know where I'm going with that, but maybe that's for somebody. But the Lord just loves to reveal to us ways that is not like us. Not not to put us in our place or not to embarrass us, but to show us, hey, I'm not limited to what you're limited to. And, and as soon as you understand that, you can begin to realize that your life has opened up to so much more potential. Because I am the one who's working in you to do, to will and to do my good pleasure, the things that will bring joy to you. Uh, he said through the prophet Isaiah, My thoughts are just not like your thoughts. Your ways are not like my ways. And how many can say, God thank you? <laughs> Thank you that your ways are not like my ways. I would mess it up so often. But the reality is, rarely does he do what we expect. And that's kind of what the whole Christmas story is about. It's one of the best examples of that truth. You look at the Christmas story, and what do we see? We see that in a very unlikely place, through a very unlikely young girl, in a very unlikely time, God shows up in the most unexpected way. Who would have thought that God would show up in this world as a tiny, vulnerable newborn baby? There is no human religion in the world that ever even crossed their mind. It is only the gospel of Jesus Christ that shares that truth, that story. The Bible says that when Jesus comes again, Revelation 170, it says, every eye, everyone will see him. And my prayer has been today, Lord, we know one day you're coming and we will tangibly see you as as well as everybody else. But Lord, I just pray this morning as your people that you would give us eyes to see today you would give us ears to hear today of what you are doing because the reality is the Lord still shows up. He's still at work all around us. The question is whether or not we see that. Now, I understand for people who don't know the Lord that a lot of these things the Lord does just kind of goes unnoticed. But the sad thing is it's the same for a lot of professing believers who are just so preoccupied with life that God is working all around us and we just don't see it. We don't notice it. We just kind of get caught up in what we're doing. And then once in a while, we turn to the Lord to kind of fix things that aren't going the way we want them to go. And we just kind of call that Christianity. And that's not what it is. Some of you are old enough to remember. it's probably about 10, 12 years ago. She's 28 years old now. But there's a, a young lady uh, by the name of Akiana, Akiana Kramerick. And about 10 years ago, she became uh, better known. She began to be on some TV programs and stuff. But, but at the age of 12, uh, Akiana was a, was a prodigy. She could speak four languages already by that age. She was um, a piano player. She composed music. She just did a lot of amazing things. But what she became best known for was the fact that she was a gifted painter. Now, she had never had any training whatsoever. Nobody ever showed her how to hold a brush or how to paint. But, but she goes on to say that when she was four years old, she had a life-changing experience. She actually had an encounter with Jesus. And she says, in fact, she says, God is the one who kind of showed me how to paint. And I just began to paint the things that he began to show me, even at that young age. But it got better as she got a little bit older. But she's always wanted to use her poetry, always wanted to use her painting to draw people's attention to her. Now, to the Lord, rather. Now, you may have seen her picture before, but uh, she has a number of paintings. I'll just show you a couple of them. Uh, When she was eight years old, she painted uh, one of the works called Prince of Peace. This is Prince of Peace. And you can tell, I mean, she's eight years old, so obviously it's, it's not that good. But um, <clears throat> do that with my eyes closed. But, you know, she was eight years old. I'll give her a break. But uh, about a year later, at the age of nine, she painted what she called Father Forgive Them. And, uh, and then uh, when she was 17 years of age, she took an entire year, actually, to complete a work that she calls I Am. Now, these paintings are pretty amazing. Uh, whatever age you may be, but let alone a child or a teenager. But really what fascinated me most about her story is that Akiana did not come from a Christian home. She grew up in a home in which her father was an agnostic, just basically, if there is a God, you can't know him, whatever, he's out there somewhere. And his mother from Lithuania who is actually a devout atheist. And so there was never any talk about God in her home, even as a four-year child especially, but even over the first few years. And she had never heard the name of Jesus. And yet since her encounter with him, she professed to be a follower of Jesus and her family professed to follow him as well. In fact, at the age 12, somebody once asked her what her life goal was and Akiana simply replied, she said, my goal is, well, I just always think about Jesus and I always talk about Jesus. That's kind of my goal. And that's, uh, that's pretty profound for a 12-year-old child at the time. But how in the world does God break through to a 4-year-old girl in an atheist home? I have no idea. But what I do know is that it's just just the kind of thing God does. God chooses the most unlikely people in the most unusual times and places to reveal himself. Now, I don't know what her understanding of the gospel is. I don't know uh, these visions and so on. Uh, We all, you know, intersect the Lord in different ways, but she has a pretty special story. But again, we, we see that in Scripture, again, in human history, but also in Scripture, we just see time and again that God just shows up in ways that we could never dream. I mean, God wants to begin a you know, a nation. Because at that time, there was no witness in the world. The world had drifted so far from God. They didn't know who he was, and they had delved into all these kind of demonic things. And so God raises up a people, or wants to raise up a people who can be a witness to the world, who can really have the gospel message, you might say, in the Old Old Testament context. And so what does he do? He calls a man by the name of Abraham, Abram back then. Abraham's 100 years old. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to begin a nation out of you, a miracle nation I'm going to create from you. You're going to have a son. Now, Abram at that time, again, is 100 years old. Now, in the natural, he would think it's impossible, but thankfully God gave him a young wife. Uh, Sarah was only 90. And so he said, you are both going to have a child, I'm going to create a nation after him. God showing up at a time when it seemed like God was nowhere to be found, God showing up in a way that man never could have imagined or created. A number of years later in Israel's history, there was a young girl, probably a teenager at the time. Her name was Esther, a beautiful young woman. The king decrees that I want this concubine, you know, thousands of women at my disposal. So she just ends up being one of them. You might say she's kind of kidnapped, and she's taken to the palace and prepared over a number of months to to be one of the concubines. Well, in the natural, that that looks absolutely you know, I mean it would be upsetting obviously for the family, but you're thinking, where is God in this? Here she is a woman that serves God, loves God, and he lets you get kidnapped. And but well, if you know the story, she actually becomes the queen. And God uses her to save his people from extinction. If you look at the disciples, for example, we forget sometimes who the disciples were and hey, I got great admiration for the disciples, they're way ahead of me, some of the things they had to deal with. But but the reality is when Jesus chose the disciples, he chose 12 people. They're probably the most unlikely candidates we would have imagined. If anyone was to pick, you know, given the assignment, I wanted to go out and choose 12 disciples for the Messiah, you can imagine what they would have come away with. They just would have been the strongest, most attractive, gifted, whatever the case may be. Jesus has this ragtag group of 12 people who I'm sure in times when Jesus was walking around, I'm sure there were people who were kind of mocked behind his back, especially the religious leaders like he's supposed to be the Messiah. Look who he's hanging around with. He chose these guys. And yet, that's what he does. He begins to turn the world upside down by the power of the Holy Spirit, beginning with people like that. You read a little bit later, and he chooses a man by the name of Saul, who was actually a Christ-hater. He was one who, who, who just loved to persecute the church and to arrest people and drag them out of their homes, throw them in jail, kill some of them. No one would have imagined. In fact, when Saul got converted, became Paul and became the greatest you know, gospel spreader in the then-known world, it took a long time for Paul to actually get into the church because no one believed that this guy actually was a Christian. Now, they just thought he was now a spy. He was trying to get in, you know, to find out where we live and everything else. But they couldn't have imagined God doing that. And I want to suggest to you that there are some people in your lives, in your circles, there are some people maybe you see on TV that you don't like a whole lot, and you need to be praying for them because God will use the people you least expect to, to, to even probably have an experience with him that you don't have. God can do that. People thought when the Messiah would come, they were absolutely amazed. And one of the reasons they didn't accept Jesus really quickly was because I'm sure a lot of them, especially religious leaders, assumed that he was going to be all cozy with the religious establishment and shun people who were sinners. And what does Jesus come, he gets all cushy with those who were sinners and he shuns the religious establishment. And so all through the Scripture, all through human history, we see God showing up in times when people think he's nowhere to be found and he shows up in ways that we never humanly could have imagined or created ourselves i can go on and on with stories but the reality is this god really does what we expect him to do and i'm so thankful i'm so thankful I had a conversation with someone just yesterday. We were talking about some of the things and and some of the things we kind of feel uncomfortable with in our walk with the Lord, some of the things we feel the Lord is doing in in, in the churches today, what he's doing in in the body of Christ, not just our church, but uh, just around the world and and things he's calling believers to and activating the gifts of the Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit and evangelism and all these different things. Well, if we're really honest, a lot of us kind of get uncomfortable with that. Well, because God, you know, this is what I'm used to. I mean, you're supposed to show up this way. You're supposed to, you know, work this way, and this is what Christianity is, and this is what church is. And the Lord just kind of has a way of coming and showing up and just kind of chuckling and saying, yeah, yeah, that's your church. Yeah, that's not my church. That's not what the kingdom is. That's not what the kingdom in power is. That's not, that's not who the Holy Spirit is. And so I have to ask myself, number one, as I see the Lord doing things, number one, is it biblical? And if it's not, okay, I can say, okay, I, don't, I just don't see that in the Word, and that's fine. But if it is biblical, then number two, I've got to ask, am I just uncomfortable? Well, if I'm uncomfortable, that doesn't hold any weight. I mean, the Lord is very patient with me, but he's just kind of waiting for you to get over your discomfort because he's saying it doesn't change. I'm still asking you to do that. In fact, we've often said that's one of the reasons I think the Holy Spirit is called the comforter. It's not just when you're sorrowful. He, he's called the comforter because he makes you uncomfortable first. And then he'll comfort you when you start doing what you're supposed to be doing. And you actually start getting joy in serving Jesus rather than it just being a faith or a religion that we've kind of gotten used to. So when we read the Christmas story, it's clear that nobody really knew anything about Jesus' birth and even a few cared what was going on. In fact, God was changing the world. And the amazing thing is only a handful of people knew what he was doing. And even those who saw what he was doing had no idea the impact that he was going to make. If you read the Christmas story, you'll find it primarily in Luke chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 2. In Luke chapter 2, we read the words that, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. In Matthew chapter 2, we're told that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea during the reign of King Herod. Now, the reign of King Herod was not altogether different from the tyrannical governments that we see in the world today. It'd be kind of like growing up in North Korea or growing up in communist China or growing up... Uh, You know, in Iran, whatever it may be, or unfortunately, maybe we see some of the same spirit at work in our own country. But it was growing up in a place where it just wondered, where is God? It just seemed like the cloud, the dark clouds were moving in. They were getting darker. It seemed like things were going from bad to worse. We look at the social issues. In fact, by the time the Magi travel from the east and they actually find Jesus, here it has been in power for almost 40 years. So imagine this. He's been in power. He's a dictator. He's he's an oppressor. And I'm sure people are thinking, man, nothing's going to change. Like, you know, where is God? What's going on? Nothing's going to change. He's been in control so long. And the reason I mention that is because in the birth of Jesus, God is once again breaking into a time that is very dark. He's breaking into a time in human history that just seems hopeless. But he breaks in with a very clear message. The angel says to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2, don't be afraid. I bring to you the most joyful news ever announced, and it is for everyone. Now, I shared it with the group at Prayer Tuesday night because as I was reading that this week, I just began to chuckle. I hadn't quite seen it this way before, and it, this may not be the way God intended. I just might have been really tired, but, but I think it kind of plays out like this. You've got to imagine the angel has been a sign dispatched from God, a host of angels, countless number of the Lord's armies, the Lord's angels. So maybe the armies were there because they had to break through spirit realms to get to our realm, breaking through the powers of darkness, because they'd come to bring an announcement. Jesus has already been born, okay? He's in the stable, in the manger. He's been born. The angel appears to the shepherds. Now, the shepherds are just mind their own business. It's a dark night. The sheep are probably all in the pen. And the angel's thinking, okay. Now, he's doing what God tells him to do. But here's how, here's how it goes down. I want you to appear to the shepherds, the Lord says. So I dispatch you. See those guys down in the fields? I want you to go talk to them. Now, Now, this is very important. He says to the angels, don't all show up at the same time. You'll kill these guys. They can't take it. So angel number one, whatever his name was, I want you to appear by yourself. The rest of them just stay behind the curtain. You just show up, <clears throat> excuse me. Now, we don't know for sure at that time that the angel was even radiant and bright. Could have just been dressed in clothes, just like when the angel came to speak to Mary. Probably just someone knocked on the door, brought the message. They realized it was a messenger from God. It would probably look like them. We don't know. So they're kind of scared enough. See, they're dressed in some way that the shepherds are going kind of, ah. So he breaks the news. And here's what he says in verse 10. Don't be afraid. I bring you the most joyful news ever announced. It is for everyone. So however long that takes, the shepherds kind of process it. Wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. The Savior's been born. Okay, that's exciting. And then you can picture the millions of angels in the darkness behind the veil. Is it time? Is it time? Okay, shepherds, hold on. I, I got some friends with me. Okay, guys. Verse 14. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to those with whom he's pleased. All these angels break in on the scene. They can't. Wait to declare the message of what has happened. You see, the angels understand the true implications of what's going on in the world. They understand the darkness and the pain. They were there at the dawn of creation when the worlds were made and the garden was made and paradise, all that God intended. They knew all that and they saw the vileness and the destruction of the devil and of sin in the world. And now they finally see the Savior is coming. He's going to make things right again. And they are beside themselves. And they break into the human scene and say, you can't believe what's happened. We've been waiting forever for this. And they praise the Lord for what he has done. What is their message? The message, I believe, is simply this. God loves our world, and God cares about you. That's why he came. That's what this is all about. Whether the world wants to hear it or not, the message of Christmas is the most joyful news ever announced. Christmas announces there is hope. You have reason to hope. You have reason to believe. You have reason to actually live. You don't have to go through life just getting by, moping around, watching the news, getting depressed. The light has come, and the darkness will never be the same. And there ought to be something in our hearts, my friends. If we really understand the message we have, there ought to be something in our hearts that says, Lord, today, can I tell someone today? Can I tell someone today? I'm walking through the mall. Is it that person, Lord? Is it that person? Lord, who? I got to tell somebody. I got a message to share. First service didn't get that. I mean, the number of people who have come to God since the coming of Christ, the numbers are countless. Do we realize there have been literally billions of people who have come to Christ whose lives have been changed for eternity because Jesus came? In fact, in Revelation chapter 7, we read just a a tiny little sliver of human history in the last of the last days. It's during the time of great tribulation, the Bible says, that Jesus will come for his church. And when the church is raptured out of the great tribulation, and they're all of a sudden standing there, the elders say, who are these? John says, I don't know, who are they? And they say, these are those who came out of the great tribulation. These are the sons and daughters of God. But he says this. He says that it's an enormous crowd. No one could count all the people. Now get this. No one could count all the people. This vast crowd. And they only came out of that little sliver of human history in the last of the last days. That's not even counting all those who believed in God for the past 6,000 years. There are billions of people in our world today, my friends. I know that Jesus said, hey, you got to be careful because wide is the gate that leads to the road that leads to destruction, narrow that leads to heaven. I don't think that so much has to do with numbers as it does just kind of with the ease of going with the flow. Now, I could be wrong on this. I have no way of proving it. You have no way of disproving it. So there you go. But I just kind of think we're going to be surprised when we get to heaven and see that maybe heaven just kind of outnumbers hell. Just the love, the grace of God, the work at heart. There are going to be people there that you never dreamed you'd see, right? And there's going to be people there who never dreamed they'd see you. That's just the way it's going to be. Because we don't see all the ways that God works. We don't see a whole lot of people who aren't in church, but have a tender heart toward God. I'm not saying don't go to church, but we have human ways of kind of measuring things, and God says, no, no, I've got a people you don't know about. Didn't Jesus say to the disciples? Lord, there's people doing this and that and the other thing. Should we stop them? It's okay, it's okay. There's people who know me that you don't know. They know me. I know them. They're doing my work. Don't worry about that. You see, we get so regimented in the way we think that God works or thinks, and the Lord says, you want to be thankful? I don't think that way. So when Joseph and Mary bring Jesus to the temple in Luke chapter 2 to present him to the Lord, there's a man by the name of Simeon, a godly man. He's not a priest. He's nobody official. He's just a man who loves God. And somewhere in his walk with God, he just has this sense in his heart of God promising, you're going to see the Messiah before you die that's wonderful news isn't it now the flip side is once you see the messiah you're going to (laughs) die i could be wrong maybe we're reading into it maybe you live another 20 years but in any case that was his promise and so he sees jesus the little child being brought to the temple and he says this lord i have seen the savior you have given to the world he is the light that will shine upon the nations he will be the glory of your people israel and, friends, as we move into the Christmas season, as we approach even our Christmas dinner theater, Christmas of Nations, I want us to remember that Christmas is a supernatural event, that Christmas has a supernatural message, that regardless of how dark our time may be in the world, regardless of how bleak you may find yourself in a given situation right now, there is hope and there is meaning because the God who created this world, He is at work. Even if you may not see it, I'm working. Even if you may not feel it, I'm working. Why? I never stop. I've never stopped working. The question is not whether, is whether or not you want to get in on it. I love the story of, uh, of the prophet Elisha in the city of Dothan. It's in 2 Kings or somewhere, I believe. And you may remember, he and his servant are in this city. And in those days, when you went to war, kind of like today, I suppose, we're not, we don't understand war really in the West, but, but in those days, if you went to war or a nation came against you, uh, they weren't just coming to occupy. They were coming to level the city, kill all of you, maybe take a few of you slaves. So it was live or die. So here they are in this city. The king has sent an army to go get Elisha. The entire city is surrounded by, I think it was 180,000, maybe 200,000 soldiers seasoned soldiers who know how to do battle. They're coming for Elisha. Okay, so try to imagine this. I'm kind of, you know, taking a bit of license here, but I kind of see it like this. Elisha gets up in the morning. They're hopelessly outnumbered. What does Elisha do? I just kind of see him getting up, strolling out to the castle wall, coffee, coffee, Armies out there. His servant come up beside him. How are you drinking coffee? I mean, I know if you're godly, you don't drink coffee, but just follow me, okay? <laughs> Ooh, I heard some ouches. I'm just teasing, I'm only teasing. I don't want emails. <laughs> and the servants basically, how are you so calm? And what does Elijah do? I see that host of the enemy. And all he does is this, Lord you just open his eyes for a second? Will you just let him see what I see? And the Lord opens his eyes, and what does he see? Hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of angels and chariots and swords drawn, the armies of the, of the Lord, the house of the Lord. And I can just kind of see the servant. Yeah, we're good. We're good. You see, regardless of the day that we're living in, regardless of what we see on the news, regardless of whatever, God is working. Even if I don't see it, he's working. Even if I don't hear it, he's working. And what I've got to do is stop taking my cues from everything I see, all the lies of the enemy, everything that's orchestrated out there, and I've got to say, Lord, I'm going to pull away from that, and I just want to get along with you, and I ask you, Lord, would you just open my eyes again to see what you see? to see what you're doing, to hear what you are saying, to hear what you are doing. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, for God was in Christ, restoring the world to himself. Read this part with me. No longer counting men's sins against them, but blotting them out. This is the wonderful message he has given us to tell others. Let that sink in. This is the message God is not your enemy. God is for you. Wherever you may be, however distant you may be, however fallen away you may be, he comes to search for you, to seek you out, to bring you back to himself. Whatever is the work of the enemy, he wants to identify it in your life, not to condemn you, but to break it off from you if you give him permission that you begin to move into the identity of who you are and who God made you to be, that he loves you. Christmas announces to our city that the true king has been born, that he is establishing his everlasting kingdom. It's not just something someday in the future. His kingdom is here. That's why we have in the foyer in big, bold letters, on earth as it is in heaven. His kingdom has come. Lord, let your kingdom be manifest in this life. Its completion will still be in the future, but its power is already seen here. I love what the ministry team said from every disciple said last month. They said, Moncton, isn't going to be saved. Moncton is being saved. It's being saved. And everywhere that we go is the people of God, that we just love on people. We just share with people. We just pray with people. We just just say, Lord, just highlight it. Wherever you're working, help me to see what you're doing. Oh, Lord, I see you're working there. I'm going to try to connect with that, that you can work. What's the Lord doing? He's advancing the kingdom, advancing the kingdom, setting hearts free, bringing people to himself. The prophet Isaiah put it this way in chapter 9. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. These will be his royal titles. Will you read them with me? Wonderful. Counselor. The mighty God. The everlasting Father. The Prince of Peace. Now he goes on to say this. His ever-expanding peaceful government will never end. And by the way, that ever-expanding peaceful government doesn't begin in the future. It's already at work. Jesus said, I've come to give you life in its abundance. His kingdom is here now. He says it's ever expanding, never end. He will rule with perfect fairness and justice from the throne of his father, David. He will bring true justice and peace to all the nations of the world. And then he says, this is going to happen. No one is going to stop it. The gates of hell will not be able to stop, but Jesus said, this is going to happen. Why? Because the Lord of heaven's armies has dedicated himself to do it. No power can stop. All he needs is his people to get the vision, his people to see what he sees, to hear what he hears, His people to understand that, Lord, what I see out here, that's not the important thing. If my heart's being filled with fear, if I'm feeling intimidated, if I'm getting discouraged, what do I need to do? Turn off the TV. Shut off the news. Get along with the Lord. Lord, what are you doing? Where are you working? Okay, let's go do it. One life at a time, one life at a time. And I believe he still has revival for his church, but there's a whole lot that he's doing right now. The message of Christmas, I believe, is very simply this. The world is not headed for extinction. It is becoming the kingdom of our God. That's the destiny for our world. What's temporary, what's dying, Paul says, is being swallowed up by life. I love the words of the old hymn writer. He said this, this is my father's world. Don't let me ever forget. I love the way he says that. He's not saying, tell the big bad world. No, 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 no. Don't let us forget. We are the sons and daughters. Don't let us forget, O oh Lord, this is your world. That though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied, and earth and heavens shall be won. Hear me, friends. Jesus Christ has laid claim to this world. You know, there's a reason why Jesus holds the scroll in his hand in Revelation chapter 5. You know why that is? Because the scroll is the title deed to this world. And Jesus is saying, through the cross, my blood, and my resurrection, I own this world now. People still have their free will. They can still rebel against me if they want. There's going to be a course of time where it's going to seem like evil prevails, but I want you to understand, I own this world, and every single person who opens their heart to me who understands I have come to save them and set them free, that I have power over the works of the enemy, I I set them free, I set them free, I set them free, I set them free, and the kingdom continues to grow and show itself strong in the midst of whatever the enemy may throw our way. The king is coming, John says. In fact, he's already here. And he is working with a much bigger agenda than we are, my friends. And he invites us to get involved. And doesn't just invite us, he equips us to join him in what he's doing. Just want to close with this story. Remember, no, many, many years ago now, it's probably 20, 30 years ago, but for those enough old enough to remember, Arnold Palmer. Arnold Palmer is a legendary golfer. And he was invited to uh, kind of just a recreational tournament in Saudi Arabia. Just had some exhibition games over there to promote the sport. And, and so he's over there playing golf along with some others. And the Crown Prince was so taken by him. Got to know him a little bit, talked to him a little bit. <clears> that the day before Arnold was returned back to the States, as things were wrapping up, he said, Mr. Palmer, he said, I, I want to give you a gift. What can I give you for just all that you've done? It's been such a joy to know you. And Arnold Palmer just said, Your Majesty, he said, honestly, you've spoiled me. I mean, you've given me everything I could possibly imagine. You've done more than enough. And the king basically said, Mr. Palmer, I want to give you a gift. Please don't offend me. Just name something. I want to give you a gift. So Arnold's thinking, like, what in the world could I ask? What can I take home? He said, okay, well, I'll just, it'd be nice to have a little memento to take home. So he said, I'll just, maybe, maybe just a nice little golf club. Next morning, before he leaves his hotel for the airport, there's a knock on the door, and he's handed a deed to a golf club. Thousands of acres. <laughs> with lakes and grass and a clubhouse. The crown prince had given him a golf course, a golf club, not a, are you getting this? (laughs) Oh, I really got to slow this down. Okay, so it's not a golf club. It's a golf club, okay? Why did he do that? Because it's the gift of a king the king would say, why are you asking for a, a putter? I can give you the whole course. I own a bunch of them. I own everything. And when I heard that story again, I thought, man, we have such a wonderful message to tell that we need to give to others. But we have such a small view of our king. We have such a small view of the great gift that he has given to us. And friends, so often we lose sight of the big things that he wants to do. We lose sight of the fact that he wants to surprise us in so many different ways in so many different times. My heart is, Lord, I want to be like Simeon. It says, Lord, I don't want to die until I see your promise. I know what you've spoken to my heart. I know what you said is going to happen in the last days. Lord, don't take me home. I'm looking forward to seeing you. But, Lord, I don't want to go until I just see these things that you've birthed in my heart, these longings that I have. I'm going to ask the worship team to join me. And say, so, well, Paul, what does this mean for us today? I just want to remind us, friends, that there should never be a time in our lives that we think that God is not working, that we think that somehow he doesn't see us. He's not doing anything. We need to remind ourselves he is always working. He's always revealing himself. He's always doing more, Paul says, than we can ever imagine. And we have to remind ourselves as well that when things aren't going the way we would hope they would, that it's in those times that we do expect even more than ever that God's going to show up. God's going to reveal himself. It just came to my mind, so it must be the Holy Spirit, but it's kind of a dumb joke. But the Lord has a sense of humor. I just noticed this morning at a bald spot, I looked at the screen and it's like, no one's ever told me, but I thought, isn't God good? Like when you're going bald, he starts in the back. <laughs> you don't even see it. And then when you do, it's just kind of, you know, it gives you time to get used to it, and then it's gone. <laughs> Anyways, that's not anointed. That's just a, a thought. But you might remember the, little, the story of the parents who had this child who was just to- always optimistic. Always, you could never, she never got down. You could never discourage her. You remember the story? She wanted a pony. And so instead, they just to this huge mound of dung. And she comes out, and she is excited. And she's just digging through that dung, that manure. And they're saying, what in the world are you doing? And she said, with all this manure, there's got to be a pony in there somewhere. <laughs> You're saying, what does that mean? I just want to bring us back to the simple thought, the simple truth, that our God is king. We quote the Scriptures easily, but he does own the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns it all. He's gone to the cross. He raised from the dead. He conquered the powers of sin and death. Not only destroyed them, the Bible says he made an open spectacle. What does that mean? Not just flaunting, he made an open spectacle. So there's no secret anymore. Everyone can see it. Everyone knows the enemy has been conquered. The king has come, and he will rule and bring his kingdom and his reign and his peace and his power and his purpose to every single life that will open their heart to him, that will stop believing the lies of just what you see. But say, Lord, thank you for who you are and what you've done. Open my eyes to see you. Open my eyes to see how you're moving, what you're doing. Help me to live and prioritize and reach for and be confident in who you are, O God, to not just go through life, until I die and go to heaven. Lord, I want to see your promise in this life. I want to see heaven on earth, your kingdom come. Your will be done in me. And I believe the Lord says, you got it. You got it. Let me show you some stuff. Would you bow your head with me? I've asked the worship team to close us in the song they sang earlier. And I simply want to give you an invitation this morning that if you're here and you don't know Jesus... It's not about religion. It's not about joining the church. It's about understanding that God did perfectly what needed to be done to rescue you and me from our sin. He became a human being, lived a perfect life so that he could offer his life in exchange for yours. He could take your sin upon himself, and in doing so, he could suffer and die for you. So that if you receive his gift, you receive forgiveness, and the punishment you deserve is no longer on you. He took it away. And now you can be washed of your sin. And you can come before God as his daughter or his son and have complete confidence in your heart that you belong to him and he belongs to you. And you can start getting on with everything that he's made you for within the context of a loving relationship with him. There is nothing that can keep you away from God except your unbelief. And unbelief is not necessarily, I don't believe what God did. The biggest hurdle of unbelief is believing that God could actually love me. That God would actually do that for me. But don't call God a liar. He said, I've come for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil and to seek out and save those who are lost. All you who are weary, who are tired, who are worn out, burnt out on religion, come to me. Come to me. My burden is light. You can walk with me. You can learn those unforced rhythms of grace and just enjoy being a child of God. Thanks for listening to the GT Moncton podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to get the sermon as soon as it's released. If you have any questions or want to get connected, go to gtmonkton.com. For live streams and other videos, check out the GT Monkton YouTube channel and follow us on social media at GT Monkton to stay up to date on what's going on. God bless.